0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to 16 Minutes. I'm Sonal, and I'm here today with the 12th episode of our podcast where we quickly cover recent headlines the A6 and Z way. Why were they in the news? Why they matter from our vantage point in tech? This week, we're quickly covering multiple news items around regulating crypto, as well as another news item around ATM fees. Before I introduce our A6 and Z experts and summarize the news, a reminder that none of the following is investment advice. Please be sure to see A6andZ.com slash disclosures for important information. Okay, so the news that we're covering this week is that the SEC ordered blockchain company Block One, which has operations in Virginia and Hong Kong, to pay a penalty for an unregistered ICO. And then, even more recently, the IRS issued new guidance in the form of a revenue ruling and a Q&A doc on how to report income from crypto holdings in specific cases. Okay, so that's a summary. Now let me introduce our a 6 Z expert for this segment on the recent crypto regulation news, managing partner Scott Cooper, who is the author of The Secrets of Sandhill Road. Cooper, let's start with the Block 1 news. What do you make of that SEC ruling?
1: Yeah, so this one's really interesting because, number one, the SEC entered into a settlement where One is going to pay the SEC $24 million. Now, obviously, that's no chump change, but what's interesting is that Block One actually raised about $4 billion as part of an ICO they did.
0: Right, I'm just to quickly define for the audience who are not necessarily into crypto, yeah. an ICO is shorthand for an initial coin offering, which kind of riffs off the phrase initial public offering in the sense of an IPO of a company, but it's actually very different than a IPO because the big difference is that with an IPO, the company is a bit more built, Oftentimes in the case of an ICO, the thing might not even exist.
1: That's exactly right. And that's actually the SEC, as I mentioned, finds the company as part of this ICO. And the good news is that's very consistent. What the SEC has said before is, look, if you are trying to build a blockchain and you raise capital from the public writ large before you actually have that network up and running, then... Those people who put that money in are really relying on your efforts in order to build that blockchain, and we won't go into we test, But what the importance of Howey is, is it determines whether something is a security or not. Because under the U.S. laws, if something is a security, you can't sell that security unless it's registered with the SEC.
0: We don't have time to go into
1: deep detail, legal analysis, etc., but could you quickly summarize each of the Howey test major three prongs? Yeah, what Howie says is, look, did somebody give you money? That's kind of, you know, one piece. In exchange for that money, were they expecting a profit? So they'd expect to earn some kind of return on that money, The third prong is, was that profit going to come from what they call efforts of others, which means really a centralized company on whom you are depending to build a project or a service that will ultimately allow it to grow. Like
0: an orange grove that you've invested property in and they're supposed to develop in order for you to make money off of it. Or even,
1: let's give a really simple example, like which is, look, if you buy a share of Apple stock, right, you give them money because you hope it'll go up. And then you are relying on Apple to actually do a bunch of work on engineering and product development so that hopefully someday they right. release the iPhone 12 and that's worth a bunch of money right. and therefore your stock goes and up. And to be
0: very clear, the stock could also go down, but the key point here is that you're not just giving money to a random corporation that's just a shell company that's just taking your money and doing crap.
1: You are explicitly giving them money because you expect them to do something for you to hopefully earn a return on that right. money. And so this is where the crypto stuff gets really interesting under the Howie test is lots of companies raise money before the network exists. And so the argument in general the SEC has said is, look, if people give you money before the network exists and there's still a corporation who has to effectively build and launch that network, you are relying on the efforts of that company Mm -hmm. to get you, you know, kind of your profit. Right. And therefore, a sale of a token before the network exists is going to be a security under the U.S. Under their definition. Right.
0: The big picture here, though, just in the context of crypto is that the whole point of crypto, especially because there haven't been mechanisms for bringing capitalism to open source, to quote Chris Dixon's phrase on this, is a mechanism to align incentives with early adopters, early developers, early maintainers. Because right now, just as a quick analogy, if you have like a ride-sharing network, and let's say the early drivers who took the chances on it, the early people who designed or early employees, just like with startups, those folks cannot actually participate in the potential upside of the thing that they are building. And so ideally... In the world of the crypto mindset, this is an important concept because if you participate in that building upfront, before there is a thing, you want to get some outcome from it. But right. the tricky part is right. defining the it in a way that protects security, people. Right. Yeah, and right. you
1: know, just to complete the analogy, right? You know, we saw actually Airbnb and Uber in the wake of the Uber IPO. They actually wanted to go back and say, could we effectively give stock options to drivers in the Uber case or hosts in the Airbnb case? They're saying, hey, look, these people really helped us build the network. How could we reward them with the appreciation that comes with the network? You can imagine a world where Airbnb was Airbnb crypto. And to your point, they gave tokens at the very beginning to those hosts, and those hosts yeah. hold on to those and those appreciate exactly. the value because of the network. Now, the, of course, the challenge we have is we have these US security laws that we have to be mindful of. So anyways, that's how he how generally is applied. So under this test, basically the SEC said, hey, what you guys did at block one was a security because people gave you money. They expected a profit from that, and they were relying on you as Block One in order to build this network to make that happen. But
0: just to be super clear, in case people out there are building companies and they shouldn't be freaked out that if they build something, the SEC is going to come after them necessarily, it was because they had not registered their ICO with the SEC, and that was the rule. I mean, the rules are still evolving, of course, but that was the thing that Block One didn't do.
1: Yeah, so that's really important to point out. So basically, the way it works in the US, just as a very simple example, when we invest in startup companies, Those are not registered securities. Those are private companies. But we're permitted under the laws because there's an exemption which says, hey, we're sophisticated investors. In the Block 1 case, they also sold to what are called unaccredited investors. And therefore, the SEC said, look, you can't do that other than either by registering it because in this case, you don't have an exemption.
0: So that's a great summary of whether something's a security or not. But as you said, that's pretty consistent with what the SEC has already said. So that's not really news, it seems. What's the bigger picture or significance here of this news in your view?
1: So a while ago, there was a speech by Bill Hinman, who's the director of corporate finance at the SEC, and he said, "Look, the interesting thing about crypto is there's a possibility that something can be a security one day, and then it can morph into a non-security at some point. In time. Right? It can evolve. And so, you know, you'll hear this term mutability as kind of, you know, at least what the you know legal scholars will talk about. And so, what's interesting about this case is. When those original purchasers kind of gave money to block one, they got this ERC-20 token. Now, eventually what happened is once the network was up and running and the company had told people this before, that ERC-20 token essentially was, they call it frozen or suspended. It kind of almost ceased to exist in a certain way. And what happened was those people who had the ERC-20 tokens ultimately received EOS tokens, which was kind of the token that still lives today, and that is really the kind of runtime token for the EOS network that is out there. Now, what's interesting here is the settlement that the company did with the SEC did not impact the ability of those EOS tokens to continue trading in the market. And the reason that's important, again, is because we talked about you have to either register a security or you have to have an exemption. The only reason, in theory, why the SEC would permit that to happen is if they implicitly determined that the EOS token was not a security at this point in time. If you go back to this Howey test, an important thing is, are you relying on the efforts of others in order to create and engender this network? And once the EOS token was out there and the network is up and running, the theory here is it was sufficiently decentralized.
0: So one thing that's not clear, though, in what you shared is why does centralized versus decentralized even matter when it comes to figuring out what is and isn't a security under the Howey test?
1: So one of the nuances that we kind of skipped over a little bit when we talked about the Howey test is there is this kind of efforts of others. But the other point is those really need to be coordinated and concerted efforts. So there's a fourth prong, people just incorporated into the third prong. But the real important distinction here as it relates to crypto is there's a difference in the legal literature between a centralized corporation that you're relying on to actually kind of produce and market a product or a service, and then effectively a decentralized blockchain-based network where There's no kind of centralized authority that really has a project plan or stuff like that. Everything's kind of being governed by this decentralized community. And it turns out, at least in crypto world and in the legal security world, that these distinctions, centralized versus decentralized, do matter. And so what's really interesting about this settlement was implicitly what the SEC is saying is, hey, EOS is sufficiently decentralized... Therefore, it fails that prong of the Howey test and is not a security, and so we will permit this token to continue trading out there. It's
0: actually very sophisticated that they recognize both the concept of A, mutability, and B, the decentralized nature of that.
1: Yeah. Before this, the only real pronouncement we had was we knew that Bitcoin and Ethereum were sufficiently decentralized Mm -hmm. that the SEC said, okay... We won't consider those securities. Right. No
0: one person could just decide by fiat, we're going to shut that down. There is no CEO of a company like, you know, just throw a random ring like Jeff Bezos at Amazon to say like, hey guys, sorry,
1: we're not running that anymore. It's over. That's right. The trading and the kind of governance of that is sufficiently decentralized that the SEC don't consider that a security. Okay. So bottom line it for me, especially the impact
0: on people who are entrepreneurs or builders in this space.
1: I'll give you all the caveats, because I am a lawyer by training, as you know, which is, look, these settlements are very fact-specific. We don't really know what happened here. But this is the first time, at least, I've seen a settlement where the SEC distinguished between a security in one instance, right, when Block.1 sold the initial ERC-20 token, and then now a token, EOS, that's trading out there in a decentralized fashion, not being a security. The SEC recognizes that something can once be a security and can no longer be a security as a result of decentralization. What we don't know is some bright line test. We don't know exactly does decentralization mean that there are a thousand nodes that are out there participating or 50 nodes or stuff like that. Everything's going to be very fact specific, but I think it says as a roadmap if you are building one of these projects that if you can think about what's the best way that we can get decentralization for the ongoing role of the network you're more likely to be able to convince the SEC that that is not a security and can trade just like Bitcoin and Ethereum trade which is as effectively tokens. That's
0: great. Okay, I also saw this week the news that the IRS updated their guidance on tax implications for cryptocurrency, especially as related to hard forks. Yeah, yeah. What is your quick take on that news, like super quick take? Yeah,
1: basically the logic here is very clear. What they said was, look, if you have a hard fork, but you don't actually get the new units of the cryptocurrency that it was hard forked into... There's nothing to worry about on taxes, right? So basically they said, look, you didn't get anything, and therefore you have no taxes. And just
0: to be super clear, a hard fork is when you think of open source networks in general and the fact that entire communities can collaborate and branch things off, etc. There are often cases when you may have a fork or a divide in the development of something. And a hard fork is when you literally go separate ways.
1: That's right. There literally are now two separate networks that are up and running. Exactly. And probably in this case, two separate tokens, ultimately, right. that kind of reflect right. those networks. So
0: in this case, you're saying, basically, if you didn't get the new thing because of the hard fork, you're not liable. Which sounds that. pretty reasonable. That and seems then, very
1: reasonable. And then they said another thing, which relates to airdrops, right? And airdrops and says, "Hey, if you've got a Coinbase account, we're going to basically just kind of give you a, drop a token into your wallet."
0: I actually think of it as like a free sample, like yeah, it's when a free you go sample. somewhere well, and idea. you
1: like get a free sample. <laughs> I think people think
0: of airdrops as this very nefarious thing, like "Oh my god, people are giving away stuff." But it's actually because the whole point of crypto is to seed the network. You have to think about how to solve this chicken egg problem to bootstrap the network. You're seeding it with early community members and fan base, and so to get free samples as a way to to participate, it's sort of like airdrop is a free giveaway of crypto. Basically. I think that's
1: right. Yeah. And so what the IRS said was, look, if you actually receive one of these airdrops, then that is taxable the way any other token is taxable.
0: Now that part doesn't seem so logical to me just because you don't actually choose to get it.
1: <laughs> it's logical in one sense, which is receipt of property makes you responsible for the taxes on that property. Yeah. But you're right, which is because you really don't have a choice here, it's a little bit odd. So obviously there's more guidance that comes out later, but at least we now know And hopefully, you know, lots of the wallet providers and stuff will figure out a way to make it easier for people to kind of track these things.
0: And I would also hope that the IRS gets a little bit more nuanced about how to understand what an airdrop is because sometimes we get very caught up in the letter of the law versus the principle of something. And this is a
1: case where the principle actually matters. Yeah. And maybe as a result of this rule, maybe companies will say, hey, look, we need people to opt in to receiving a right. drop, right? As opposed to just automatically having it show up. In your, It'd be like an email newsletter, office. actually. Like, yeah. hey,
0: if you want to opt in to getting my newsletter, like subscribe. Right. So bottom line it
1: for me, Cooper? Yeah, so bottom line is nothing new. The basic principle is if you receive property, then you will owe taxes ultimately on that property. In the hard fork where you don't get something, no taxes. In the airdrop, you got it. And maybe at some point in time, you want to not receive those airdrops because you don't want to be responsible. But that's for another day. That's great. Well, thank you for joining this segment of 16 Minutes. Thanks for having me. All right,
0: now the next segment this week is about a recent article in Axios reported with this headline that ATM fees set a record approaching $5. And basically it's tracked by bankrate.com and turns out the ATM fees were $1.97 in 1998. and It now costs an average of $4.72 to take money out of an ATM that isn't owned by your bank. And so this is the highest amount it's ever been since bankrate.com started tracking. These. And this matters because ATM fees disproportionately fall on low income neighborhoods that banks tend to avoid. So you basically have to go to like these random ATMs. And anyway, so there's a, that's sort of the big context for the news. So now let me welcome our A6 and Z expert, general partner Angela Strange, who is, covers FinTech and has written a lot about banking the unbanked. Welcome, Angela.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: So quick take, this is sixteen minutes. What is your take on this news?
2: I think the most interesting point about this news is that it is news. <laughs> okay, okay. Is that just bad news? I mean, no, I think I think <laughs> it is great news. Like it is now a story that bank fees are really high and disproportionately affecting the people that need bank fees to not be high. Five years ago, I don't think people would have cared that much. What changed? Some of it has been a slow progression. Think frog in boiling water, and we've finally hit a point. So first, and there was a great chart in the New York Times about a week ago, which tracked since 1995 the growth of the median income. Median income in America slowly creeping up 20% since 95. Healthcare costs up 40%. Housing, 50%. Education, 80%. Most of America that lives paycheck to paycheck, their paychecks are not going up very much Mm -hmm. and costs are rising increasingly fast.
0: They're getting very squeezed.
2: Exactly. And so what do you not have room for in this very squeezed margin? Financial services fees that are often unpredictable and you don't really know how much they are and they disproportionately impact the people that need to not have them the most. So reason one, you're just getting way, way more squeezed. Two, per this article, the fees across the board are actually getting much worse. ATM fees, the much bigger one is overdraft fees. There was $34 billion in overdraft fees paid last year. You're barely balancing inflow and outflow each month. You get your paycheck, and then you have a whole bunch of bills that come in at times that are like later, earlier, you've got your rent, you've got thing. And then what exacerbates the problem we've talked about in a previous episode is that payments don't clear instantly. So you might have paid something, and you mentally know this thing is probably going to come out of your account in three days, so even if you look at your mobile bank balance, you don't have a great real-time view of exactly how much cash you have. And you can screw up by $5, and all of a sudden it's going to cost you 35
0: That's terrible.
2: And then the third reason, and this is one of the ones that, that I'm most excited about, is that there are now a lot of new financial services companies coming in that are offering things like no overdraft or free checking, and it's shining a light on this very large problem.
0: But We're talking about this large problem of fees all across the board, What's the context for why this is happening? I mean, quite frankly, if I were an incumbent and I see all these new services, I would just cut my fees and develop new service innovations and make those customers happy. So there are a
2: lot of smart people in these institutions that would love to do that. And here's the challenge. Most of these institutions were built hundred, maybe more even years ago. Most of these large institutions still have very large real estate footprints. Fixed cost. Then it's built on top of all sorts of software that is built 50 years ago. So banks spend billions of dollars on IT. 75% of that is just on maintenance. That's not a lot of money going towards new type. Problem one. Challenge two happened post-financial crisis, and this primarily affected the larger banks. And this is a, a great story of unintended consequences. Dodd-Frank, we've all heard of. There was a, a smaller amendment in Dodd-Frank called the Durbin Amendment. And the intention of the German amendment was to slash debit card fees drastically such that merchants, this is to help small businesses, yeah. wouldn't have to pay banks as much every time a consumer great. walked into the store to swipe the like debit card. Seems like a good card. thing. Seems like a great idea, right? Want to know what happened? What do you do if you're a large bank sitting on a large fixed cost and all of a sudden you lose a whole bunch of revenue? You can't cut costs that quickly. You lose all those debit fees. Exactly. You need to drive up your revenue to make up for that. So free checking disappeared, unless you have a large balance in your account. And then overdraft fees. This is exactly when those started to creep up. So what's the role
0: of technology here? Because if I think about this new wave of fintech companies, it's exciting because they get to give people services, et cetera. But honestly, money, there's a good reason there are regulations here that keep you safe as a consumer. This compliance is necessary in many ways. How should we think about this kind of tension between regulation and innovation.
2: Yeah, so the great thing is that technology can very much help regulation. Smart fintechs take this very, very seriously. Because if you don't do know your customer KYC or anti money laundering AML, AML, it's not you get slapped with a fine, like you're going to go to jail. Here's the challenge. You look at some of the larger banks. So for instance, Citibank alone has 30,000 out of 204,000 employees in their compliance department. Oh my God. Many of which are processing suspicious
0: activity reports. So why aren't they A, automating that and B, how the heck could a startup afford that kind of cost to comply?
2: You're saddled with these legacy infrastructures these processes the temptation is just to add more people. Now if you're a new startup you don't have that so you have the opportunity now and this is one of the most exciting themes in financial services is that there are all these new infrastructure companies and all they do is building anti-money laundering solutions which a new startup can use relatively easily.
0: So they basically basically can suck these things and they can essentially just get an API for KYC AML and then basically build their core product?
2: Exactly. Instead of having a Frankenstein system of old type players, you can go out to the market and figure out who is best to breed in all of these different building blocks that I need, put them together, and you as a startup can focus on what you're really good at, which is probably your end user consumer innovation. Couldn't the incumbents do that too? The incumbents are looking to startups to help reduce their technology costs. They just have a much harder time of doing it because they have millions of accounts that are going through these systems. But they are sometimes doing that for new products that they launch. And so this new system of better infrastructure companies is going to benefit new companies and incumbents also.
0: Okay, so bottom line it for me: How do we think about the ATM fees, and what's our big takeaway here?
2: So I think this is great news. That it's news. It is going to inspire new financial services companies that are tackling these challenges. It already is forcing incumbents to react and offer better and better services. And this is just going to accelerate. We're in the Amazon Web Services age of financial technology, and we'll see great new infrastructure companies that are going to power the next generation of banking and innovation. Fantastic. Thank
0: you for joining this segment. Thank you. Well, that's this week's 16 Minutes. As a reminder, I always include the articles discussed and other relevant background and related reading links in the show notes. You can find those at a6nc.com slash 16 Minutes. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in.